You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 83 of the Life in Ruins podcast. Reinvestigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Jonan. David will not be joining us today. However, tonight we are joined by Dr. Jillian Wong, who is an adjunct professor of anthropology at Metropolitan Community College in Kansas City, Missouri, and is also a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Tübingen in Deutschland. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Jillian. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here. And yeah, we're very excited to have you on too. I know like my earliest interaction with you was through an SAA thing and we were talking about influencers and I was going on a rant and then you responded, well, I think they were talking about you and that, and that stopped me dead cold because I wasn't thinking about that. And I had no idea how to respond other than like smile like an idiot, like, oh, wow, I'm being noticed. I'm in a very (laughs) professional sense Um, and I think lost like all sense of credibility, but I appreciate you being on here. (laughs) No, thank you. Because it was really funny because we get on this, like, I feel like in that meeting, we went on a rant about social media. And I was like, kind of like, okay, guys, this is great. Let's focus. And then and then you added something and said something like, how will we identify these people or something like that? And I was like, well, they're you. So, <laughs> you know, totally. I do have a funny story about that, though. When, when I found out that we had that I was part of that group, I re-listened to your guys's podcast about the SAA meeting. I think you had an Indigenous only podcast, yep. and I re-listened to that because at the end you had like suggestions for the SAA. So like I wrote them down and was like, okay, these are useful. I'll bring them to the meeting, and then you introduced yourself, and I was like threw it out the window. Like, well, I appreciate it. I appreciate that a lot. But yeah, we're super excited to have you on tonight. And I guess, you know, we're just going to go ahead and and get started. So what first got you into anthropology growing up? You know, a lot of our guests are either dinosaur kids, history kids, they want to be an astronaut or out there collecting bugs. So which one, which one were you? I was an outdoor kid. And a history kid, I guess. I grew up doing a lot of outdoor activities, hiking, camping. My whole family really likes to be outside. And they also, like from an early age, my parents, my grandparents, my aunt and uncles, they were always talking to us about animals, nature. It was always like part of the conversation, showing us what different wildflowers were. So it encouraged like this true love of nature in me and my sister, many of my cousins. Um, so I always liked being outside, but I loved history growing up as well. I'm not like the, the person who knew I was going to be an archaeologist from an early age, you know, like I was looking at this and or a paleontologist, you know, I wasn't, I just, I always said I wanted to be a teacher. And then, yeah, I went to college and then I found anthropology and archaeology. But my, the biggest thing was I went to field school because they told me if you're an anthropology major, you can go to field school. And so I did. And like a weekend, I was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> can I get paid to camp for months at a time? <laughs> and the field director was like, yes, that's what I do for a living. It's called archaeology. And I was like, I could do this. It was, it was actually kind of a not a rough camping field school, but we were out there for a month and a half. It was all tent camping. We had bathrooms, but we didn't have showers. 
And it was for me really normal, but I think for a lot of students who didn't grow up camping or anything, it was more difficult, but it sold it to me. I think for some people, that kind of situation doesn't sell it to them because they're like, for a month and a half, I don't have a shower. And for me, I was like, I could be paid to do this. Like sold, absolutely. So that's really... It wasn't really until then that I decided this was for me. For sure. So you so you ended up going to UC Davis and, and discovering mm-hmm. this as part of that. Did you work with uh, Dr. Robert Bettinger? Who, who did you end up um, going to the field school with and where? Because I feel like every time I hear about UC Davis, they are doing something, you know, cool somewhere cool. that's pretty remarkable. So I went to field school. It was around that year by two graduate students and... It was at Vandenberg Air Force Base, and that's between San Luis Obispo and somewhere else that I can't remember, (laughs) on the coast. (laughs) So we camped off of the Air Force Base uh, at a campsite um, that I think was public land. And then we worked on the Air Force Base every day. That was like my first exposure to like working on a military base ever. If I remember right, it was... Dr. Yelmer Erkins, who was in charge of the field school, but I don't remember because it was quite some time ago. <laughs> but I I knew Dr. Bettinger. I worked in the Zoark lab and his office was right next door. And so if we pre- processed anything particularly stinky, he would come in and like give us a hard time. So yeah, I know he will still recognize me sometimes at, at like archaeology conferences and say hello, which is a little crazy because it's been so long gotcha connor didn't maddie go to uc davis yeah maddie maddie, maddie Mackey. Mackey. i don't know when she graduated though it might have been uh so after, i graduated uh, in 2010 yeah that would have been either right as she was starting or, or yeah pretty oh. pretty close but uh, anyways yeah she's a former guest we met her at the university of wyoming no but we've known a lot of you like california folks who have come out of like UC Davis, Chico, or, or, or other places from California. Uh, and they Chico's all end up- great, too. I almost did my master's at Chico because it's so great with Frank Baham. He's like an amazing archaeologist there. Yeah. Oh, I would have, yeah. I would have, that was like my second choice. I would have loved to go to Chico, too. Yeah, they seem like they have like a solid California system of archaeology and, and things like that. And we're actually at the company, the CRM company I work at, we are using... Erkins, doc, Dr. Yelmer Erkins as our like uh, um, shell identification person. No so, way. Yeah, it's, it's kind of wild to hear that because I always, a name kept coming up and I was like, that's that's a pretty unique name. So I assumed yeah. it's, yeah. So he's like, it's he's just, a it's small guy. world. He, yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. super small world. And he's one of the like professors I remember from my bachelor's. I mean, this was a long time ago, but that was very student focused. He was really, his research was cool and he really cared about students. And so it was, yeah, he was a cool, he was a cool person. I had a one class with him, but I never really knew him very well. I actually worked with his wife later, who's a cultural anthropologist. So I know her much better than him randomly, but it's such a small world. <laughs> Absolutely. So while you're also an undergrad, you minored in French, which is always kind of like, which is common if you're in an anthropology degree that you might have to take like a bachelor's of arts, which requires language. So have you seen French become useful in your experience as a anthropologist? So French was really so far really useful for me. Um, I work currently in the Paleolithic in Europe and really, I mean, it was named, it was, 
I guess, originated and developed in the French system. And so some of the first sites that are identified as Paleolithic come from France. And everything that I needed to know for my work for my PhD and the background was primarily in French or in German because I did my PhD in Germany. So it was very, very useful to have this French background. I mean, I could read all of the articles. I've been to several conferences that are have the option to have speakers in French. And so I could attend talks and didn't need like to have a translation or focus on the slide or anything. So that's been really nice. I did have one older French archaeologist once who was presenting, who had kind of a reputation for being sexist, um, was presenting in French. And I was really wanted to see his talk. And I was sitting in the front and he assumed I was a, not a French speaker. But he stopped his entire talk at one point, looked at me and said in French, do you understand me? And I just responded in perfect French back. Yeah, I speak French. I got it (laughs) or something kind of like with a little bit of slang in there to be like, I know what I'm doing. (laughs) So (laughs) I used it one time to sound really cool. (laughs) Fair enough. I know like at, at Wyoming, they made me take a language that so didn't do it uh, for my bachelor's. And I just took Spanish and that those four semesters of taking Spanish, I was like, I will never use this. I'm so mad they're making me take this. And then, of course, I'm in Ukraine. None of the field directors speak English, but the head, the PI speaks German, which I took in high school. So I was trying to bring that up. And then the assistant director spoke Spanish. So I was trying to communicate with my PIs who didn't speak English through languages I barely passed and (laughs) made it work. So it's like, you never know. I I ended up emailing my German high school teacher and I was like, dude, I know I was a horrible student. I just want to tell you right now. It ended up paying (laughs) off. Oh my gosh. But I've had that experience too. Like I was the first time I was in the field in Germany, the people I worked with spoke English, but we were sharing a house. It's uh, like the apartment we lived in was owned by the city. And so they allowed us to use it and another program. And so there was a student, a university student in the house with us who only spoke German and I think Portuguese or something and a little bit of Spanish. And so him and I would do, because I didn't speak German yet, him and I would be doing like hand languages and symbols (laughs) and some Spanish. And it was, and I was sitting there like, I have a degree in a foreign language. I've taken a couple German classes in preparation for moving here. And I speak English and we still don't know what each other is saying, (laughs) you know, (laughs) drawing pictures. But I was actually, that's like the first time I realized how much humans can communicate without a shared language. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I think, you know, we, at least in a lot of the places I've been to and the stuff I've worked on, you, you get people from other countries and you find that language or some sort of way to communicate and, and, and end up having, making really good friends out of it. So that's, that's, that's cool to hear it. So you get your degree in anthropology, you get a, a minor in French. What kind of led you to want to continue in on and get a master's? This is a, this was a tough question for me. Because I knew once I finished at Davis, I knew that I wanted a graduate degree. I knew like archaeology is where I want to go. And I knew zooarchaeology is what I wanted to do. But I really couldn't see myself going for the like the full PhD. But I had 
like good pressure from my mentors at Davis to do the PhD, basically saying, we think you can do this. You will be so good at this. So really good pressure, really like supportive environment. But it wasn't something I wanted to do. I really didn't want to go to school that long. And so I ended up just deciding, okay, I need to find a program where I can do just a master's and where it's not going to like set me back. I wanted to do research. I wanted to do everything. So I started looking at my options for that. And the, the big thing that really actually convinced me, one of the reasons that convinced me to go to the University of Utah is when I got there and explained to who, the, who would be my advisor, Jack Broughton, I said, I just want to do a master's, but I want to do research. I want to set myself up if I want to do a PhD afterward, I can. And I also want to be doing CRM at the same time. And he just was like, great, that sounds fine. Most people in our program do PhDs. So I recommend we keep this between each other until like your last semester or so, so that people don't kind of, you know, shrug you off or like not give you research projects or things like that. But he was super supportive and thought like, that's fine. That's what you want to do with your life. Go for it. Gotcha. And was there much of a culture shock going from California to, to Utah at all? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not, not really for me. I grew up um, in a super, I'm from California, but I'm from Fresno, which is in the Central Valley. It's a really conservative area. So I grew up in a really conservative town in a very liberal household. And then Davis is a very small very white, <laughs> very wealthy place to go to college. I went to high school in a really dangerous part of town, a really low income part of town that had a lot of gang activity. And so I had kind of a diversity of experiences. So when I moved to Utah, it wasn't really the expected culture shock is, wow, it's so conservative here, right? Because the Church of Latter-day Saints is very much involved in the government there. But Salt Lake is really a really pro surprisingly progressive city. It was, I mean, it is to me. I was surprised how progressive it was. So while I lived there, the, the LDS church marched in a, its first pride parade. And it was like incredible. People were, I was crying. People were crying because it was so like monumental that they would do this. And they did it in Salt Lake. So it ended up not being a big culture shock. And I'm kind of um, into anthropology, kind of studying other people. <laughs> so like the weird quirks of, of living in a state that is so connected to a specific religion was super interesting to me. I went down an embarrassing reality TV rabbit hole that involved, I'm sure you can assume which reality TV shows that involved. Over the Jersey <laughs> Shore, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So it was, you know, for me, it was actually fine. And I love Utah. I would move back there in the heartbeat. Maybe not. Now that I have a child, it's a little more challenging because they don't teach evolution or sex education at every school, at least as far as I know. Um, I think that primarily their sex education is abstinence education. And like, yeah. so like, I don't, yeah, so that's a little bit different. But before I had a kid, 
I would totally move back there. It's a good place to be when you're in your 20s and 30s. Like that's yeah. what it's become. My family's from there. They still live in Bountiful. Okay. I've been very familiar with Utah and seeing how it's changed over the decades. But still, every time I drive over, all my cousins give me a laundry list of things I need of alcohol. I need to buy certain beers before I cross the border <laughs> to treat them all. So, but um <laughs> Excellent. So we'll be right back. Episode 83 with Dr. Jillian Wong. Uh, Please enjoy these messages by our sweet, sweet producer, Chris. Welcome back to episode 83 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are here with Dr. Jillian Wong. And in the green room, the little space that we have in between our recordings, you had mentioned that pretty well-known archaeologist who might have been our advisor visited you while you were in school um, in Germany. Could you give us a a Bob Kelly tale? Sure, of course. (laughs) He came, uh, he had a humble, I think it's a fellowship of something, in Germany where you basically can do research associated with the German university. And I didn't know he had the Humboldt with the university. I was doing my PhD at University of Tübingen. But I was in the field working at my PhD site And my advisor, Nick Connard, brought a group by the site to say like, oh, this is what we're working on right now. And as they're walking up, he starts to introduce him like, ah, Jillian, and this is Bob Kelly. He uh, is an archaeologist. Probably you know him because you're American. And as he's saying, I was like, oh, my God, that's Bob Kelly. (laughs) I've never met him. Like you guys, I don't have like, I'm not a close personal friend. But it was really, it was really cool. (laughs) And he asked me about like the CRM company I used to work for. I had a jacket on with its name on it. And he he was like, I know that company. And I told him who my boss was. He was like, yes, I know him. And then he went out to dinner with us, the whole crew afterward, and ended up being really nice, really interesting, interested in my research. Yeah, I'd run into him every once in a while. He's kind of my archaeology grandfather. One of his students was my advisor. So... Excellent. And what brought you to Germany for your PhD in the first place? How do you go from the University of Utah for a master's where you weren't sure about getting a PhD to ending up meeting Robert L. Kelly in a field somewhere? How did that happen? Oh, such a good question. <laughs> Not how you would think. <laughs> my, uh, my lifestyle is not the typical archaeology lifestyle. That sounds very weird. But anyway, I'm a military spouse, so my husband is in the army, and he ended up getting stationed in Germany. So I had finished my master's, we were living together, we got married, and moved a few times. We moved like every year to three years for his job. And he got stationed in Germany. And I had a panic attack because I need to work. I can't just sit at home. It's not my lifestyle. And so... Yeah, I started messaging, emailing, calling every friend of a friend of a friend that I knew that had any connection with Germany. And in the end, I ended up connected to a researcher at Tübingen, Andrew Kandel, who basically told me, if you'd like to do some field research, we have several field sites, you're totally qualified. You know, if you if you like to do field work in the summer, you're welcome to come out. Or I... He's, he's not charged, but he said, I assume, you know, you could apply. I assume you'll probably get in. I did. I got in several digs. And he said, just so you know, I know you're a zooarchaeologist. We have one of the best zooarchaeology programs in Europe. If you're interested in doing your PhD. And I was like, ha, 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 you're insane. No. And then I kind of started looking into their program. 
their zooarchaeologist, Britt Starkovich, is incredible. She's a student of Mary Steiner's. Susanna Munsell is there. She's a very well-known German zooarchaeologist. Their zooarchaeology collection, the whole program, was established by the father of German zooarchaeology, arguably one of the fathers of European zooarchaeology. And so it's just like a well-established, really cool program. And so I decided to visit and kind of ask them about opportunities. And I was sold. Like the first day of my visit, I was sold. I met with Britt. She was incredible. Very easy to get along with, but clearly someone who pushes her students to do really high quality work. Their collection was amazing. They have a collections manager. So there was someone in charge of the zooarchaeology lab. So students don't have to do it. A professional. He was also incredible. Good friend of mine. Excellent researcher. Yeah. Their facilities are amazing. The people there are amazing. I just, I was sold. In one day I was sold. And then I went to the field with them and I was even more sold. <laughs> so then I started. I lived in a small apartment with my dog in the right outside of Tübingen in Southwest Germany. And my husband lived in Bavaria uh, near the military base. And so I would go to school for two weeks and I'd come home for like a week or a weekend. And then I'd go back to school for two weeks and back and forth. All right. Well, I mean, kind of going off European PhDs here, like there's this assumption or view in America that like UK PhDs, so PhDs that you get in archaeology in the United Kingdom are viewed as less prestigious or maybe less rigorous as an American PhD in anthropology. Mm-hmm. And your experience is you have you seen that perception applied to German PhDs or is it the opposite? How how is your PhD viewed by American archaeologists? I mean, so far, I I haven't had that issue, but I'm not looking for a 10 year track job at the moment, just that the military lifestyle doesn't really fit. And so that could be a difference. It might be different if I'm applying to 10 year track jobs that might be not be as desirable, just because the teaching and the research, the way it works in Germany is different. And so maybe that's not what they're looking for in their professors. So I, I think I would have to argue really carefully in my cover letter for why I know what I'm getting into in a 10 year track position in the US. The other thing is, so the system's slightly different. The bachelor's in Europe is three years. The master's is one to two years, depending on the country and and the certificate. And then the PhD is supposed to be a three-year PhD. So that's separate from your master's. So you've already done probably the two years of your master's, and then you do an additional three for the PhD. And I think what I've run into is people think that is really short time to do your PhD, three years, which it is. It's too short. The average German PhD student finishes in four years, which is what what it took me. But I think that's one of the issues is there's like this, that's really short compared to an American PhD. How is that even possible? Um, So I think that's one of the issues I thought, and from my experience as an American going to Germany, I was very well set up. My master's program set me up really well to be successful there. But I don't know if it would have been as easy for me if I had started with the master's there because the system is really different. The way they structure their classes and everything is really different. For the PhD that I did, it's a research PhD. You're not required to take courses, which is really different than American PhD. So I think there's a lot of things that because it is so different, I think I can understand why there's that that kind of stereotype around that's not as as quality or something as an American PhD. Um, But yeah, I feel that I've worked equally as hard 
and was equally as tired as every other PhD student. <laughs> and I did a very big research project, so I like to think it's enough. <laughs> I'm ready to argue that it's enough. <laughs> and that's a great segue. So what was your dissertation on? What was this big project of yours? It's um, all of the zooarchaeology is what it is, is how I describe it. So the title of my PhD is Human Paleoecology During the Magdalenian in Southwest Germany, uh, which is a very broad title. <laughs> Basically, I am, the, I am still the zooarchaeologist for a site called Langmadhalde, which is a name that not even Germans like. And it's in <laughs> Southwest Germany in the Swabian Jura, which is well known for its Paleolithic archaeology. And when I first moved to Germany, this was the site that I worked on for the University of Tübingen as something to do when I first moved there, not knowing I'd be a PhD student yet. And I liked it. I liked the crew, the people who run the dig on site. Shout out to Mosin and AJ are like, just like amazing archaeologists, incredible at what they do and really smart. <laughs> and so I liked the, I liked the excavation a lot. It was the first year that I was there it was the first year they opened the site. And so when I started talking to people about doing a PhD, I said, I want to work on this site. I want to do the bones from this site. And my specialty is microfauna. So this is small animals in the archaeological record. I primarily do micro mammals. So that's usually things like rodents, um, insectivores, like moles, shrews, sometimes bats. It depends on what you get. What we have mostly at Langmudhalda is rodents and insectivores. So that's that's mostly what my PhD is. And what I do with these animals as I reconstruct past environments, I did that for my master's as well. Because they're small animals with really short lifespans, they reproduce really quickly. They have a lot of young. And so they basically are responding to changes in their climate, changes in their environment much faster than other animals are. And as a result, we can see it visibly in the archaeological record in terms of species representation, for example, as, as one way, is that you can see on the scale of, you know, thousands of years or whatever your geology is doing at the time, that these animals are representing changes in species distribution are representing changes in climate. And there are studies that show this also with modern populations on the scale of every 10 years. You can see this with modern populations and how they fluctuate as well. So I also apply several more complicated models to make this more exact and statistical. But at the site, there was a concern because we didn't know what the assemblage would look like. This is the first year we'd excavated there. There was this concern when I proposed this project that this would not be enough, that the microfauna would not be enough to create a PhD. This turned out to be inaccurate. And uh, we had plenty. That could have been one PhD. But basically, we built in... I also did the traditional zooarchaeology for the site, what I refer to as traditional zoar. So, you know, what were the humans eating? Were there cut marks, et cetera? And then we added additionally to that on the large herbivores. So on reindeer and horse, we did um, stable isotopes. So we did carbon and nitrogen isotopes on those as well, because those can tell us about the environment. And so we basically have two different proxies for environmental reconstruction. We have the stable isotopes, from the large herbivores, and then we have from the microfauna and the models that I run, a reconstruction of the past environment. And then I put that together with the human behavior from the site. So in my case, that's human interactions with animals, um, primarily in this case through hunting. And so 
I talk about what does that mean? What does this environmental landscape mean in terms of human behavior at the time? And the big question we're asking at this time period, which is the Magdalenian, it's a time when people are moving back into Central Europe and Central Germany. It's, well, all of Germany, I guess. It's a time when we're moving back in after the ice age and after the ice has, has slowly melted. And so what we're really asking is, what do these environments look like for Magdalenian people when they come back? when people are returning to this area and why do they choose what I'm interested in is why do they choose to stay there? What really is desirable about the region that we're working in and at a more local scale, what in, for example, the Valley that the site is in, what about this Valley makes it different from the other river valleys near it? Because they are all different topographically, vegetatively, there's, there's a lot of different conditions in each of these river valleys in the vicinity. Um, and the question really is, what makes this one unique? What does that mean for human behavior? Does that mean they're doing something different in this valley? Or are they exploiting it differently? And so that's where I go with my work, is I'm really interested in these time periods where there's this big environmental change. How does it look at the local level? And what does that mean for the behavior of the people on the ground? Excellent. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I have oh, a really you. dumb question, though. Uh, red deer, aren't those pretty much just elk? Yes, okay. <laughs> they are. So this is, uh, yeah, red deer is service elephants. That uh, is the species name. But yeah, that's elk in uh, the Americas, in North America. And that is uh, red deer in Europe. Yeah. And then they call moose in Europe elk, right? Yes. Yes. That was very confusing in Ukraine, trying to explain those animals and what I hunted <laughs> because yes. we were showing each other pictures like, no, that's that's a red deer. I'm like, no, 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 this is an elk. Like, no, 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 this is an elk. I'm like, no, 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 that's a moose. And it was just kind of like this who's on first kind of thing. And it was oh, just yeah. so is, that was fun. It was not. It's like it was a challenge, too, because I primarily at conferences present in English. So I've only ever done one thing. And I have one publication in German. I was the third, uh, second author. I'm like the lowest on the totem pole. <laughs> it was heavily edited by my co-authors. And I've done one presentation in German and I read from a script. And it, I wrote the script, but I read it. And like, and so I'm primarily presenting in English, but I'm presenting to a German audience. I'm presenting about a German site and you're sitting there going, the elk, <clears throat> this is so wrong, the elk <laughs> uh, at the site, and the red deer at the site, which are apparently two different animals right now. And it's, it was like, oh, <laughs> you get some American researcher walking up to you who works in Germany and they'd start talking to you about elk. And you'd have to be like, are we talking about elk? What we as Americans say as elk? Are we talking about elk? What they say as elk? How deep are you into the elk here? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, that's 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 hilarious. You almost have to go by a scientific name and just yes. skip the the shorthand. <laughs> yeah, but then you get the non archaeologists like, ugh, these so archaeologists and their scientific names. Yeah. <laughs> I was doing zooms for Dr. William Taylor here at CU Boulder and all the zooms information is based on the European data set. And so I had to go and clean it up and there was like animals in there. I was like, oh, well, we don't have these. Red deer, delete, like, and just like <laughs> deleting things. He's like, no, Carlton, those, those are elk. And then this animal, like it, they say it's a lion, but it's really like closely related to our cougar. And I'm like, yeah. can you clean this up? Because I have I'm step foot. Like, I don't, I don't know these things. I'm not a zooarchaeologist, man. You know, that's always my complaint. Well, that's always a zooarchaeologist, the complaint we get, right? 
could you please not present tables with species names? Could you give us the common names? Sure, we can do that. We'll give you both. And then I'm sitting in a lithic presentation and there's some very complicated figure on whatever sort of thing that's happening that I don't even know, a reduction strategy. And I'm like, I don't know what you're saying to me. Could you say this in English? Because I'm an archaeologist. I can identify all of that in the record as something that I need to save. I can say what it is in the record, but what you're saying to me, I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think, no, on, on that point, I think we will um, end this segment. We'll start off the next segment, maybe talking about your research and what you found out. My theory is, is that they chose to settle in that valley because it has an obnoxious German name that even Germans hate. So that's, that's, and it's in the Magdalenian, which is like, if you look on one of your publication histories, it's like Magdalenian and then like the site name. And it's just, it's just so German because it's just these <laughs> long, long words that are absolutely upsetting. But yeah, we'll be right back with episode 83 of Life in Ruins podcast. And we're back to Life in Ruins podcast. So Jillian, what were the results of your PhD on a site that makes my eyes hurt just reading it on my outline here? On I'm Lang not going to pronounce it. Langma, Langma Halda. That still did it wrong. Langmahalda. Yeah, Germans hate it as well. So the results, basically what I ended up finding in terms of the environments is that during the Magdalenian occupation of the site, which is, we're going to be real rough here, the, the horizons that I worked with, that I've worked with so far, date to around 15,000 years ago. So for these occupation levels, what we're talking about is generally Arctic kind of tundra conditions. So think about modern tundra, right? But what we're seeing is something different than today's tundra because it's the past and there is no exact same environment in the past that exists today. That doesn't happen. For example, the mammoth step, you know, it's why we call it the mammoth step. It's not the same step as today, slightly different because it's not today. The tundra that we're looking at at this point in the Magdalenian 15,000 years ago in the Lona Valley, which is the valley that Langman Halda is in. So in this specific river valley, what we're looking at are also stands of trees. So kind of clusterings of vegetation that you don't see in the modern tundra today. And the reason I think that that's happening is because vegetative growing seasons are longer. According to my reconstruction, there's more precipitation, according to my reconstruction. And some of the stable isotope results are also, they're looking just a little different than we would, than we would expect them. And interestingly, we have some species of animals represented in the regular zooarchaeological assemblage, or what I like to call the macro fauna instead of the micro fauna, uh, the normal people zoark. We have occasionally some species that are a little bit more adjusted to warmer temperatures, more temperate temperatures, more like we see today in Southwest Germany as opposed to this time when it's still really cold there because we are talking about generally a tundra. So basically what I end up arguing is the reason that Magdalenian people are staying there and the reason that this region is so desirable is because it's more diverse. So it's a much more heterogeneous environment than what you're experiencing, for example, closer to glaciers that are retreating. So closer to, for example, the glacier that's on the Alps, which is just south of the site, you're seeing much more vegetation in this, in the area that I'm in, I mean, it's not a lot. We got some stands of birch trees and associated veg, right? It's not like a forest. <laughs> but 
what that means is when we have that vegetation, it can support more diversity of animals. So it can support more mammals, for example, which is primarily in birds, which is primarily what we see reflected in the archaeological record. There aren't a lot of other edible resources that we see as well in the archaeological record, like insects or something like that. But so what I argue is basically there's a lot more for the humans to take a lot more resources in this valley than we're potentially in other regions. So the region south, and then probably also the regions west. Um, a lot of the reconstructions that are coming from directly west of the region are Switzerland, for example, are showing that they don't have these trees, they don't have this diversity of vegetation, and they're not able to. It's too cold, perhaps. There's there's not a long growing season, things like that. Is, is there any chance that the site name could be translated in German to English to maybe say Oasis? That would be great. That would be very useful. (laughs) Uh, No, according to a member of the Eissite Kunstverein, I'm just going to say it in German. So it's that um, Ice Age Art Association of the Lona Valley. According to a couple members of this association, which is basically a public association that funds a lot of the work we do at the site, they're amazing. It's an amazing group of people. They're like people from the public who are interested in archaeology and want to support it. And according to a couple members of that group, they told me that it has to do with some sort of mowing of the grasses. I think the story is this name was on some map that they used to do something back in the day. And it was like, whatever, we'll call it Lang Medhalda. There's another potential rock shelter next door that they explored last year. And it didn't, it didn't, I don't think it had anything. I don't remember. It also had a terrible name similar to this. And I was like, guys, we have the power to name this whatever we want. (laughs) We're doing a bad job. (laughs) Well, excellent. How has this transitioned into um, a postdoc that you're still tentative? You're, You're doing it, but waiting to do it. They've given it to you and you're just airplane mode. Yes, I am not airplane mode because I can't get on an airplane thanks to COVID. (laughs) So basically, we're still excavating at the site. And so the postdoc was a way for me to be the zooarchaeologist of the site while we're still working at the site, to still continue to pursue some of the open-ended questions from my PhD through the zooarchaeology, look at a little bit more specifics. We have some new horizons that we're getting to that have later dates. We're interested to know what's going on with those, if something's different. I'm interested to know if this like diversity of the environments, if we can see it developing or if it just looks like that the whole time, which would be really interesting. Anyway, it's a, it's a way to keep doing that work and to just kind of make sure that the zooarchaeology is taken care of at the site. I was supposed to start that right after I finished my PhD last summer. Um, I was supposed to return to Germany. I had moved back from the to the United States before I finished. Basically, my analysis was done. I just had to write. So I moved home because my husband had already moved home. And I was supposed to return to Germany, defend, and then go straight to the field, start the postdoc, and then come home after a couple months. And then I was supposed to go, I'm supposed to go back every summer to do this, to excavate, and then to do the analysis. And this was the postdoc. COVID happened. I defended virtually. I just get some nice WhatsApp messages from the people at the site with pictures and an update, an official update and an email at the end of the last two field seasons. And here I am just waiting. Hopefully it looks like this summer were a go. Last summer I could have gone or yeah, this last summer, 2021, I could have gone, but it was a little challenging. I have an infant. And so it was a little challenging with COVID with the infant 
going to a foreign country and we just were like, eh, we'll wait one more year. So it looks like next year is a go, thanks to vaccines. Excellent. That's awesome. Yeah. So something that we've, we've mentioned throughout the podcast and, and your journey as an anthropologist is you're a military spouse. I am. To an active duty military member. Yes. Who, as you mentioned already, moves around a lot. How are you making this work? And what has your experience been having to, uh, you, to do all this? Do a PhD, raise a family, and move across around the world. It's a challenge. It really is a challenge. It's even more challenging when you actually really love your partner and he's like a great person. And there's, you know, it's challenging and you're like, but I like this. Um, <laughs> so he is someone who's also very goal oriented, very career oriented. This is something where we really understand each other very well. And as a result, we're both really supportive of each other's careers, which has been super critical in our relationship because he does go to the field. He's in combat arms branch. So he's in um, a branch that goes to the field a lot. And he has been deployed twice. So we've been apart. We've been long distance several times, including for my PhD, kind of, kind of long distance. And so that's always been a part of our relationship. Even when we were dating in college, that was part of our relationship. He would in the summer have to go do something for the army I might go to the field or have a job or something. And so this was always part of our relationship. So it's something that we have been doing the whole time is being apart occasionally. So that is not a challenge for us. We're very good at that. The thing that's um, a challenge now is we have a baby. And so uh, being apart now is who does the child go with? And since my husband's in the military, you know, that's not very baby friendly. And so the child goes with me. And so it's a new experience now is that I have to plan to also have this kid with me and that I don't have a partner who has the option to take him while I'm gone. And so that's that's something we knew, but it is a challenge. It means that, you know, there will be months of our son's life that my husband won't see him. And that's not because he's deployed or something, but it's because I had to go to Germany or wherever my project is taking me and, and my son can't necessarily stay home with him if he has to do something. So that's the, our current challenge is if we are apart, I have to take the baby. So that's like a little bit been difficult for both of us. Gives me more challenges as well as him and missing, you know, his son. But the, the big thing that has been great is we both are like this. We both really love our jobs. We're both really passionate about them. Um, we both want to keep doing what we're doing. I don't think you can be an archaeologist and not love your job. It's a challenging career, especially if you like to, if you are someone who goes to the fields like I do, it's really difficult to not love your job because you just get burnt out and you're just done. So that's been really great is that we support each other in that way. And we're willing, we understand when we need this extra time or, you know, when we have to move or something like that, because we understand that the other person's goals. I think that the moving is the biggest challenge. This is one of the reasons I just wanted a master's is I could do CRM work. I loved CRM work. I still love it. It's a fun job. I like to think I'm good at it. I really liked it. I thought I was good at it. Um, and that seemed to be the easiest with his job. But I really love research. So when I got this opportunity to do the PhD, and I did, um, it just reminded me, okay, I want to do research. It's not a possibility. So right now, what I am doing now that I have the PhD is I am trying a new career option, which is um, 
working for a community college. Right now I'm an adjunct at a local community college in Kansas City where we are located and I'm teaching. And then in the summer, I have this summer, I will have hopefully my postdoc, my research to go to. And I have a couple other research projects that are in process that are getting in the process of getting funding or um, whatever. So my hope is that it's basically teaching during the school year and then it is research during the rest of the year. Um, so that's what I'm trying right now. And hopefully when he retires, um, maybe in either eight to 10 years, when he retires, that sets me up really well for if we are in a specific location to look for that tenure track job or something in a university. So the goal is then that I would have the research background, I would have the teaching background, um, and I'd be ready for that position if that's still what I'm interested in. That's awesome. Your husband's an officer, I take it? Yes, he is. <laughs> is, he calf- is he a captain at this point or is he a major? I can't tell you. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is just something that just personally we try to keep more private is Ah, um, if we're talking publicly, then, you know, I'm really open about sharing my life with people because I think it's really important. I mean, it's really helpful to me to hear stories of people with kids or who are women in archaeology or whatever to understand how to deal with like life as well as my job. But yeah, I mean, I try to keep him out of it, his identity out of it a little bit. <laughs> but I can tell Fair you personally later. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. And that's excellent thing to do. Absolutely. So what advice would you have for archaeologists going through the same thing or about to go through the same thing where they're with a military partner mm-hmm. and they're having these discussions now while they're either in graduate school or um, undergrad? This is a really good question. It's um, a big challenge in the military as a military spouse because a lot of us have advanced degrees. A lot of us have certificates or whatever training is required for your chosen career. And a lot of us do not use those, those certificates, those degrees, because we are married or in a relationship with somebody who works 15 hours a day. Um, for example, or who is gone for half the year and maybe we have kids or even just a pet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's incredibly challenging then to also have your own career. And so a lot of people decide, okay, while we're doing the military thing, I, the partner that is not in the military, I'm not doing my career right now. Or some people decide, okay, then I don't have a career and I'm happy to be at home uh, for the rest of our relationship. For those of us who do want to continue in our careers and have the option, that's important to have the option to continue in our careers. There are several military spouses who do not have that option. Spouses who are dealing with a loved one who has PTSD, for example. Spouses who are in relationships with someone who is not as high ranking as me. So, you know, maybe there's not the the money and the finances to do certain things. You have to choose a different job or something like that. And so my biggest advice is to be really honest with each other. It's like very cheesy advice, but you have to be really, really honest with each other. You have to have some really uncomfortable conversations, especially because it's the military. I mean, these conversations are, what if I die? You know, these conversations are when I'm deployed, if there's, if I have an emergency and I'm in the hospital while he's deployed, what do we do? Who do we call? When we weren't married, the conversations were about bank accounts and things like that. Okay. If I need to access money for him while he's gone. How do I do that? Because I'm not on any of his accounts. So I have to be connected in some way legally. So 
you're having such uncomfortable conversations. And I think conversations that we're not used to having so regularly that you have to just be completely honest with each other and say, no, we're not doing that. That's not an option for me. Um, You can't do that in your career. And that's really challenging to say for people who are so career driven like we are. It's really hard to tell your partner, like, you can't do that. Uh, we, We will not survive. Our relationship will not survive that. So it's a really challenging conversation. You have to have at all times. You have to be honest. I also say go into it with an open mind. Always be willing to take a job you didn't think you wanted. I have done CRM. I have done, I have worked it in 1800s Living History Museum where I dressed as an 1800s, a person in the 1800s uh, every day at work, which was one of the best jobs I've ever had. I have done a lot of volunteer work. I have volunteered in educational departments at museums. I've volunteered on base. I volunteered for archaeologists on base at the military base. I have volunteered for the military to do kind of like a family liaison work where I am the main point of contact for people in my husband's unit. If they have questions about the military, about him or their spouse, what's going on, and I can provide the resources for them. I've done graduate school. I've done jobs that have nothing to do with archaeology, but it's to keep me busy or interested. And every single one of those, no one believes me because it sounds so cheesy again, like the honesty thing. Every single one of those has made me much more successful in my career. It's made me much more successful. I have a lot of skills that I think a lot of people who just bang through their degrees, who who start their bachelor's and go directly to the master's and the PhD, probably don't have and have to learn afterward because they, um, you know, got their, their real big career job afterward or something, you know. So I have, I noticed in my PhD, Jeremy's a different situation, but I noticed that I had a lot of skills that I could navigate situations with a lot better than other people because I've worked in a lot of weird <laughs> jobs in a lot of different situations. So my two are be honest with each other, even when it's really painful and be willing to do a job you didn't expect. Just be willing to try it um, because it could really turn out to be great. Excellent. That's really good advice. And I think I can uh, speak to some of those skills you've gained because I know in the little group that we're in for the SAAs, you're a really good communicator and delegator. Well, and there's times you. where there's times where someone will say something and I just I'm just like, uh, and you just hop right in, like, oh yeah, that's a really good point. But this is kind of what we were speaking to. And I'm like, yes. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I try to come from a place of honesty again where I'm I will sometimes be like, I'm very stressed out right now because of what you're saying. I'm just starting with that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know if that always comes it, off nicely. It's excellent. And I, I'm very, it does. And I'm very grateful for it because often you're speaking on my behalf. So I don't have to say anything without you realizing. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I'm glad. Excellent. So, I'm not alone. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very interesting group and we're getting things done. Um, so before we end the show, Dr. Wong, uh, what are a couple sources? These could be books, articles, videos blog posts um, that you would recommend for anyone interested in zooarchaeology, being a military spouse, anything on the site that I can't pronounce, like (laughs) (laughs) lay it down for our listeners. Since we were just talking about military spouses, my go-to recommendation for military spouse stuff is a podcast called Holding Down the Fort. Holding Down the Fort is by military spouses. And it's an excellent resource if you are a military spouse or a a partner of someone in the military, or even just a family member or friend of someone in the military. Also, it's really great if you are 
a friend of a military spouse or more interested in learning about the lifestyle, it really kind of opens your eyes to what we're going through in terms of zooarchaeology. If you're if you're interested in Langmad Halda, the site no one can say, it is in English. I am the only person who's published on it because it is such a new site. So if you are interested in that, you can check out my publications, which you can see on ResearchGate or that I plug regularly shamefully on Twitter. <laughs> um, if you don't have access to them, you can just contact me. I'm always happy to share that with people. In terms of Zoark, man, just you got to get the book, The Archaeology of Animal Bones by Terry O'Connor. I mean, hands down, the easiest, most accessible Zoark book. And you can get a free PDF online from the author. Really open, excellent author. If you want to learn more about microfauna, the challenge is there are not a lot of good how-to articles on what, what I do. So it's look for examples, read my work, say, wow, that was confusing. I'm going to read somebody else's that she cited. Or, you know, wow, she writes so clear. It's fine. But yeah, look for some examples in that. Or get in contact with one of us who does it. We're happy to, ch to chat with you about it. Excellent. And we will have all the sources that you sent to us uh, in the episode description below. So everyone, you can find those, the citations and the different kind of categories that we kind of touched upon. Thank you so much for providing that for us. You're welcome. We really appreciate that. So we don't have to look the night before it's due and figure out show notes and start going through ResearchGate and finding all the citations we need. So we're deeply <laughs> thankful for, for you providing this for us. We're a well-run machine here. Well-oiled yes. and well-drilled. <laughs> I just did a lot of copy-paste. <laughs> really we challenging it. work. <laughs> so where can our listeners find you on social media? They can only find me on Twitter. <laughs> um, the other things are my personal things. So on Twitter, I am at Jillian. L. Wong. And Jillian is spelled with a G. G-I-L-L-I-A-N-L-W-O-N-G. And if they do want to email me, I assume we, will, we can put my email in the show notes or something. You're welcome to email me. I have a Gmail that you're welcome to contact me out as well. Perfect. And because this show is a life in ruins, we have to ask you a very cheesy question at the very end of this. Great. So if you were given the chance again... Would you still choose to live in a site that no one can pronounce and study the ruins left there? I would always choose <laughs> to live a life in ruins. <laughs> excellent. 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 That's what we like to hear. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Dr. Jillian Wong. You can find her on Twitter at Jillian L. Wong and her email. Um, you can find all this in the episode description below. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast. Provide us with feedback, whichever podcasting platform you use. Also, we found out recently that if you listen to the all shows feed, on the APN. We don't get those metrics. And me and Connor found out the other day that we have probably twice as many listeners as we thought because we don't actually have access to those metrics. So please, if you listen to our show on the All Shows feed, please, 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 please follow our show on Spotify, iTunes, and listen on there so we can track how well we're doing. So when we ask Chris for a raise eventually, we can get it. So please, uh, if you're listening on that, please, you know, help us out follow us um and with that we are out thanks for listening to a life in ruins podcast 
You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So this was submitted to us on Instagram by book.mangum. I'm not sure if that is inappropriate or what, but this person said, what's the difference between a good joke and a bad joke timing? I don't know. Timing. I said it already. What's the difference between a bad, good joke and a bad joke timing? Oh. Thank you, Connor. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we are out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster, Rachel Roden, Laura Johnson, Max Lander, and... This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.